You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Branke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, and each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the top five stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry moving forward. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving a positive review. And finally, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Sorry about uh, running a little late this week. Uh, are we running late this week, Jeff, or are we uh, a little early? We're right on time, David. Right on time? We're right on time. All right. Uh, as always, we are live, although on a Tuesday. So if you'd like to ask questions, please make sure to do that in the comments section. I'd also like to take a moment before we start, Anna, and thank our secondary listeners. Do you know what our secondary listeners are? No. Our secondary listeners are all the people uh, that are spouses or partners of people that listen to the podcast and have to listen to their interpretation of our banter. Apparently, that's a real thing, and it causes some trouble every once in a while. Just like, I don't listen to the podcast, but my husband does, tells me about it, and I have to listen to it. So thanks. <laughs> that was a positive, positive wow. feedback I received. Word of mouth promotions. That's right. That's right. So thank you to all the secondary listeners out there. All right, let's get uh, let's get started with our first story. CEO of Ford says absentee rates are 20% at some plants. Ford CEO Jim Farley says keeping his factories operational is a challenge. In any given week, up to one-fifth of Ford workers fail to show up. The reasons are many, but the Ford CEO says workers don't want to wear masks, which are again required in the factories. Ford and other automakers are struggling to fill gaps with temporary temporary workers. Kristen Gijek, who is with the Center of Automotive Research, says, with the forces working against the industry, quote, it's a goddamn miracle we can make a car at all. Anna, Kristen seems like she's having a rough week. <laughs> she is a straight shooter, and I like it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she's almost indicating that like the chip shortage is buffering this problem a little bit for them and you kind of wonder if they didn't have this problem they'd be slow i don't know they wouldn't be able to support demand maybe if they had the chips to make all the cars that they want to right now Mm -hmm. anyway i thought that was interesting Mm -hmm. um so jim farley as you mentioned highlighted masks as a big problem here um though ford and most of the other u.s automakers have been pretty mum on the topic of vaccine mandates right um that is until last week when GM, um, they announced that they would be asking all of their salaried workers to report their vaccination status. So there's a lot of buzz going around the industry about what this means. Okay. Um, so according to the Wall Street Journal, in a note to workers, GM said that the disclosures would help the company determine the overall immunity of its workforce mm-hmm. and help guide its safety protocols, including ones that have to do with social distancing and masks. So... GM CEO Mary Barra declined to comment on whether a vaccine mandate was being considered. And this, of course, is a discussion with the unions as well. So there's like a lot of, you know, cooks in the kitchen, if you will. But it wouldn't be the first time the prospect of foregoing a mask had been used as like a carrot to try to get people to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Maybe GM is paving the way for that. I don't know. But if they did, it would give Ford certainly, I think, permission to follow suit, and then maybe that could address this absentee problem that Jim Farley seems to be um, believing that it's fueled by mask wearing. Um, right. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, you know, it's the union saying like no one has approached us yet about the idea of 
mandating vaccines, but it right. seems like GM is maybe sniffing around that idea. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, everyone is suffering from the mask thing. I think nobody likes to wear a mask, but at this point with COVID cases up, mm-hmm. how do you keep outbreaks from occurring in a facility? That's kind of the only way outside of vaccines. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. I'm, I'm kind of watching it. Jeff, what do you think is going to happen next? I mean, we talk about it almost weekly, how what is it? A million dollars an hour for automakers if they're shut down. So if masks aren't the answer, is a vaccine mandate the answer? I don't know. I mean, that starts getting has the potential to get very contentious there. The UAW has come out and said, if you can, you should. Mm -hmm. They're not saying there should be mandates or anything like that, but they are, I guess, for lack of a better term, pro vaccination. Right. So when you look in these facilities, I think there could also be some other factors at work in addition to the COVID elements. We've talked about how much more competitive the job market is overall right now. Mm-hmm. It's it's just difficult to find people in whatever wherever you're going, whatever sector you're in. Looking at a handful of different sites, what I could come up with the average pay at Ford plants, again, you know, combining some different um, some sources here about $24 an hour, mm-hmm. okay, when you're working on the plant floor, starting at about 20. So when you look at those, those are definitely a little bit better than some of the new job offerings or the new job markets that have really kind of expanded when you look at like restaurants and other service industries that were typically mm-hmm. lower than that before. Right. These are still a little bit higher than that. When you look at the temporary workers in these auto facilities, they're coming in at about 17 bucks an hour and these folks have no benefits or anything else. Yeah. So when they talk about trying to fill some of these slots with temporary workers, they're not competitive from a salary perspective because yeah. when you look at $17 an hour, that is where a lot of server type of positions, a lot of um, restaurants, uh, all those types of um, positions that before paid less, now they're creeping up into that 15, 16, 17 bucks an hour. So they can't compete there. Yeah. So the average amount here, also when you look at other manufacturers, they're upping their game. Mm-hmm. So 20, 24 dollars an hour, that doesn't stand out. Yeah. It's still mm-hmm. extremely competitive. So I can see where Ford has difficulty potentially keeping or attracting a higher quality workforce because they're competing against so many other different people within their sector and outside of it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think has to creep in here a little bit is when you look at those market factors in terms of job opportunities and different openings out there, there has to be some hubris for these folks who are at these facilities Mm -hmm. thinking, you know what, if I don't feel comfortable because somebody either wants me to wear a mask or people aren't wearing a mask or whatever the dynamic is there, what's Ford going to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to fire. They can't even they can't even get people in the door right now to take these jobs. They're not going to fire me. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Plus, I've got UAW protection. So if my kid needs to go back to school shopping, if I'm not feeling great today, whatever the case is, I think they do feel more confident potentially in just saying, nah. Yeah, I'm not going in today. Plus, I totally agree. Yeah. Plus, it seems like they're building a lot of cars right now that can't be finished. Yeah. Basically, they're waiting for all the electronics and the chips to come in. So I just think this is workforce basically kind of calling their own shots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if temp workers are starting at $17 and they're through a temp agency, a cut of that hourly rate is going back to the agency too, making it right. even more in line with you know McDonald's starting at 15 um, well, well, I do think it is worker hubris. Uh, the UAW spokesman, uh, Brian Rothenberg, actually challenged Farley's comments over the mask mandate, causing the manufacturing challenges. He told the Detroit Free Press that UAW collaborated with GM, Ford, and Stellantis over these safety protocols, including the mask mandates. But instead of the masks being the issue, Rothenberg just said, 
it's common for workers to use a majority of their vacation during the summer. During months. the summer, yep. yeah. Yeah, so mm. it makes sense. They're just all on vacation. That's it. Well. They're not taking a stand against mask mandates or upset about vaccines. They're just, you know, going boating with the family. <laughs> um, In higher quantities. And uh, what I also found interesting is that the Detroit Free Press asked Ford's global manufacturing and labor communications manager, Kelly Felker, to confirm the 20% rate of absenteeism, and she refused. Hmm. So, I mean, she gave a little cannot confirm or deny, but she said it was because uh, they don't release those stats. But I feel like if your CEO goes firing them out into the public, maybe you should have his back a little bit. He's like, I am not getting involved in this. Yeah, right. Oh, why did he say that? I have uh, some vacation days to use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, what did you guys uh, think of that? Is it just vacation? I mean, I, that is true. I don't yeah. think that that's like not true, that people do take a lot of their vacation time in the summer. That ha- happens everywhere. But I do think that everything that we've touched on today is part of the problem. Yeah, It's yeah. definitely a lot of variables working together. Okay. How can there not be part of a culture just within those plants? I mean, they've got if there's a thing where they're feeling uncomfortable, they don't actually see the finished product going out the door because they can't actually finish it. I think that's just going to impact your whole attitude about going to work on a given day. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, life is still happening. Still yeah. have all those other factors to consider. So, um, yeah, I, personally, I think it's just a little bit of sort of a, a minor, like, employee revolt, maybe at a little bit higher level than you would have seen it in the past. Well, and he doesn't say where these plants are. He said 20% absentee rates at some plants. I mean, s- some locations of the U.S. are really dealing with very, very severe COVID outbreaks. Mm-hmm. So, potentially, people are not feeling safe at yeah. work on a production line. Well, and we talk about it all the time where those are just – basics, not beyond COVID pandemic, the basics in terms of making people feel respected and safe at work is what will keep them coming back. Mm -hmm. All right. Our next most popular story this week, new sinking halts repair of tilting San Francisco high rise. The Millennium Tower in San Francisco was undergoing a $100 million fix to stop it from sinking. And then engineers watched it sink again during the repair. It sank 2.5 centimeters, or about an inch, and all work was stopped. The crew was trying to improve the building's foundation, but all work has been put on hold for up to four weeks so they can try and figure out what happened and how to stop it. The fix came after residents sued the developer and designers and reached a settlement that included the $100 million to install 52 concrete 140,000-pound piles to anchor the building to bedrock 200 feet 250 feet below ground. The 58-story tower opened in 2009. The 419 apartments quickly sold out and have included very popular people like Joe Montana and giant southfielder Hunter Pence. Woo. But not that popular. Yeah, no, I actually included that one specifically because I knew he angered people. And uh, once again, Jeff, a tower spokesman said the building was safe. And I... Just don't believe it. <laughs> it's not getting better, right? Right. I mean, they're coming up with all, they're putting in these seventy-ton pillars basically into the ground. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, there was a really interesting article it was on the San Francisco Chronicle. It came out earlier this year, in which the um, the editor of the article I should actually shout him out here, um, Curtis Alexander, talked to a guy named Tom Parsons. He's a geophysicist mm-hmm. with the U.S. Geological Survey, and what he's saying is basically. The Bay Area has grown so fast, the ground literally cannot handle all the weight. Really? 
So what he is saying now, I have no way to put this in perspective, but when you, he added up the weights of all the buildings in the Bay Area, he put it at about 3.5 trillion pounds. Okay, I have no scope of what that mm-hmm. means. Seems large. Yeah, that's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. But when you think about the growth of this area, it's because you've got all these tech companies and all these tech hubs or what San Francisco has become, that whole area, and its proximity to Silicon Valley. And basically, it's all of these people have come to this area and built these huge buildings, these headquarters. Mm-hmm. Salesforce just put up a huge building in San mm-hmm. Francisco. Basically, when you combine just the sprawl mm-hmm. of the city – with the fact that it's also a coastal area and you've got rising ocean um, elements to deal with, basically saying San Francisco has been shrink has shrunk about three inches since the beginning of the century or since the, the 1900s. Okay, sunk the entire... The whole area is down about three <laughs> inches. Now, yeah. he offers no understanding as to why this Millennium Tower is that much worse. Yeah. But still, it's it's just amazing when you think about all of these really smart innovative people going out to this area to and some level make the world a better place. Yeah. They've kind of made San Francisco a little worse. Right. Because right. they're building really big buildings in an area that just does not seem to be able to support it right now. Oh man, I feel it's like, kind of crazy. I feel like there's an old timer argument in there somewhere because you know, like remember 10 years ago when people were always talking about how like they're learning how to like create websites, design apps and stuff like that, but they don't know how to make anything actually tangible. Yeah. Like there's this tech hub creating, you know, the internet of everything, but they're slowly sinking into the ocean and don't know it. It's just <laughs> that's basically what the, what this guy is saying. And there's other huge buildings out there; they're just not sh- leaning or shrinking, sinking into the ground yeah. at the same rate. Um, I actually found a really interesting uh, prediction from a geotechnical engineer, this guy Larry Carp, who two years ago he has sixty years of experience, and he predicted that this was going to happen. He says that it sounds relatively straightforward. When there's a loss of ground, the surrounding ground moves, and everything like above it settles to fill the gap. So he said that this sort of could uh, repair or lead to irreparable damage to the building, which is uh, like so his... No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. Well, his thing was that... So basically, when they drilled these oversized uh, excavation holes, there's like a slight gap in between the soil and these piles and just that little gap is filling in and that's what's causing the sinking. And it's just, you hear the, uh, that's what blew my mind. Nana was that I was reading about this engineer who two years ago was like, yeah, don't do that. And they just decided not to listen to him. My God. Very frustrating. Yeah. I'd like to point out that this is the tallest residential building in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of, you know, uncharted territory a bit. Uh, but nobody can feel good about this after what happened in Surfside, Florida. Um, mm. I think people were stunned by that, and you got this feeling like buildings in the U.S. are, you know, Safer. I hate to use the yeah, like too Safer. big to fail. I hate to use that term, but like you know, with the regulatory requirements and the quality of work, and um, but I think that the situation in Florida like probably doesn't help these residents sleep at night. And it's my understanding that it's still considered safe to occupy, and this is despite some weird findings. Um, in recent years, like in 2018, when residents were hearing creaking and popping sounds. And then uh, one resident in a corner unit on like the 38th floor, I think, 36th floor, discovered a cracked window. And the significance of that was that these windows are supposed to be able to handle like hurricane gale winds. Mm. Um, So they believe that that crack was maybe a symptom of a much larger structural failure. Mm -hmm. This was in 2019. And... (laughs) 
despite yeah. the financial liabilities that the builder has accrued here and payouts and such to the residents, I can't imagine it's easy to sell this condo if you own one. No. Because, um, you know, San, San Francisco and the whole Bay Area of California, I think like the the um, the housing market shifted a bit during the pandemic because some people left the city uh, because of remote work and whatever. So it's my understanding that like rents have gone down. I think housing prices have leveled off a little bit in that very expensive area. And that's because people have moved out of the city. Some people have moved out of the city. There's just less pressure there. So if you wanted to unload this unit, it was hard before. It's super hard now, I bet. Um, And then the more publicity this gets, like... I mean, I'm not, you know, I know these people who own these units have a lot of money. Yeah. But you still feel bad for them. I mean, yeah, they got- no, it's well, regardless of, sorry, uh, regardless of what they spent, you should feel, you should not only feel, you should be safe in your home. Exactly. And you mentioned Surfside. And what was incredible about that is that it was sudden, but everything, as everything came out, it seemed like maybe that wasn't so sudden that there were a lot of red flags that people just neglected. Whereas, and this just feels like a lot of red flags. A lot. With a 58-story tower, Jeff, in the middle of the city. In the middle of the city. But that's the thing is, like, if if this were to collapse or something, there is a ton of collateral damage. It is a very tight footprint that city is on. <laughs> you know what I mean? A 58-story yeah. building? Like, where does that go? In Everywhere. Yeah. Well, I feel like they think they can they'll have a better idea as to what's going on because it's not – with in Florida there, I mean, they found all sorts of issues that were involved with the the maintenance and the building materials and things of that nature. We just had another story that came out that basically they couldn't understand what happened with the concrete that was used in securing a lot of the joints and it was used around a lot of the steel that was used in that building. Here, this is basically just Mother Nature going, no. Too much. Mm-hmm. No, this this will not work here. So as opposed to, you do wonder at some point they're sticking, this guy stick $100 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Into putting how many of these things? 150, yeah, 70 ton pillars into the ground. Mm-hmm. I cannot even imagine the scope of that project, and it didn't work. Well, that's so that's the other like you were talking about. Uh, you guys on the podcast last week were talking about the installation of the Verizon cable, and the guy just hit a gas pipe, you know, because he wasn't excavating properly, he wasn't yeah. using the proper digging technique. In this a hundred million dollar project to put. 52, what'd you say, seven, seven ton? 70 ton. 70 ton piles into the ground, and they make the holes too big? Like, get a better better hole digger. <laughs> well, and I don't, but I mean, you can say that, but to me, this just seems like, this just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Like, this now, and they've got all these other huge buildings out there that are having, not tilting issues, but yeah. they're sinking as well, just at a much slower, I guess, palatable pace, if yeah. you will. Um Acceptable I think it's, thinking. I, yeah, yeah I, if that's a thing. Like, at some point, you just got to say, this just isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to chop off the top of this building or something. I, I don't know. Well, and what is the answer? I mean, the top, is it's leaning now 22 inches to the north and west. And, I, yeah, I don't, at what point does it become unsalvageable? You just got, yeah, I think you got to cut your losses here. I mean, we've been covering this building for how long? This uh, is, I mean, a couple yeah, of years. 2016, maybe? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's get out. Yeah. <laughs> Get out. Well, let's get out of this story. All right. <laughs> wow. Well done. Our next most popular story, cell phone catches fire on an airplane. Last week, after an Alaska Airlines jet landed in Seattle, a passenger's cell phone caught fire. The passenger's phone, quote, overheated and began sparking after the flight from New Orleans landed at about 8.30 p.m. on Monday and was waiting for the gate. 
The crew used fire extinguishers and a battery containment bag to stop the phone from smoking. But it got hazy inside the cabin, and the crew had to deploy evacuation slides to get everybody off of the plane. Anna, we've seen a lot of turbulent plane rides in the media lately. Everyone's running a little hot. I feel like someone's phone blowing up is not going to help the stress level at all in these planes. Turbulent <laughs> plane rides. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, right. Yep. You're just, you're just dropping them all over. Aren't mm-hmm, you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I missed a week, so I'm like fully charged, fun-wise. Fully charged. Oh, story. another wow. unintended pun. I'm just full of gems for the not. Someone help me. Um, <laughs> Anna? Yes. So are phones only catching on fire on airplanes, or is that just what, only what, what, what people want to read about? Because I don't think that that's – that. I mean, I think phones catch on fire. But, yeah, but I, every time it happens on an airplane, it's like front-page news. Yeah, well, it's – I mean, you know, because of the potentially catastrophic, you know – Stuck on an airplane thing? Yeah, well, it's – I mean, there's hundreds of people on an airplane. If it catches on fire while you're just sleeping on the couch, I mean, it's a bummer, but yeah. Yeah. Probably on like eight. Yeah, there's kind of no place to go. Mm-hmm. Except for when you're parked at the gate and you have evacuation slides in this case. But yeah. um, I, I don't know. I mean, we all remember a few years back when Samsung was having like the worst year ever. I think it was 2016. Yeah, the S7. Yeah, their phones were starting on fire like crazy. One of their phone factories even started on fire. Yeah. Their washing machines were starting on fire. Um, <laughs> it's a miracle they were able to move past this incredibly terrible dump of a year it was just bad. <laughs> every device is bursting into flames i know as, soon as, as soon as you touch it mm-hmm. it just burns your skin off um but since then it's been i feel like pretty quiet about like these phone explosions which maybe has lulled us into a false sense of security because the fact of the matter is lithium batteries actually can be a little sensitive um like they're sensitive to temperature and pressure fluctuations i even read that one way phones can start on fire on an airplane is when they fall between the crack of the reclining seat and get crushed in the mechanics because if you puncture a phone it can start on fire really that's a thing that happens oh how does what's the mechanic how does it get punctured crushed no so like you know you recline in your seat in an airplane in an airplane because you're a monster right and then your phone falls out of your pocket crushed in the mechanics and not only are you the monster just crushed up in the person's grill behind you but your pants are on fire they kick you your phone explodes they're not kicking you they're just giving you the subtle knee jab yeah it's like "Mm." mine are not that subtle i can't believe they are no yeah no uh jeff uh beware of that scenario (laughs) yes yeah well i'll go down a little bit different route here so what's interesting you mentioned the um the, the Note 7 phones. Right. That was in, was that like 2016? They were having trouble with those batteries. Yeah. Right. Well, guess what? Samsung is using the same battery supplier oh. now that they did there. Oh, cool. It is, yeah, because why would you want to switch? Mm-hmm. So the company is called Amprex Technology Limited. They're a Chinese manufacturer of these lithium batteries. And what's interesting about them is <laughs> they've expanded their business, okay? Mm-hmm. In addition to supplying these these types of batteries for mobile devices, they're also getting into electronic vehicles. I knew electric you were going to say cars. Excuse me. That's a bummer. And one of their biggest customers, can you guess who it might be? They Toyota. just signed a huge deal with the Tesla subsidiary in their Shanghai facility to supply batteries for uh-huh. their EVs and through 2025. Mm. What's interesting is a lot of people, when they look at this company, Amprex, they say that their technology is a bit dated. They use older materials. Mm -hmm. So they're using older materials, less reliable processes, 
to create their batteries. Mm-hmm. Now, on the mobile devices, it's very rare, right, that these happen. They do get lots of headlines, like Anna said, especially when it happens on a plane when everybody panics and they've got to deploy, you know, mm-hmm. the emergency chutes and everything else. But doesn't that make you a little nervous to know that these are the same folks that are going to be putting vehicles into electric vehicles? Or batteries in the vehicles, Especially yeah. because they're kind of... I don't know if you can say cutting corners, but they're not using the latest technology because yeah. it is less expensive, which allows them to grow their business and be more profitable. Also makes them obviously look more appealing to somebody like Tesla. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, that's what <laughs> Tesla promises, the state-of-the-art technology. And then you kind of right. uh, peel back a couple layers. Yeah. And it's uh, the people behind the exploding phone bring you the new Tesla battery. And, I mean, we have seen situations where all the heat that is in these these batteries for electric vehicles, they can create a problem. It's rare. It's extremely yeah. rare. Yeah. But you're still looking at a ton of heat. So, yeah, it does make you nervous a little bit to see that these folks are continuing to not only supply stuff for mobile devices, but potentially branching off mm-hmm. and growing into cars. Uh, part of the – and actually, before we get to that, Anna, that's troubling – <laughs> I mean, yes, it is. Um, I mean, back to my point about like, do do phones only explode on planes or do we only talk about phones that explode on planes? Um, mm-hmm. EV fires are covered much more regularly now than a traditional internal combustion engine vehicle fire. Like failure, yeah. And those vehicles start on fire too, actually a lot more. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. To, for what it's worth, I you know I think people freak out about the battery stuff. Um, I don't think it's happening as much as it it is suggested based on the media coverage of those events. But I would agree. But I think the thing that just sort of you know says you know puts the red light going in my mind is just when you see that they are somebody who's very open about the fact that they do use a less expensive route in getting to the finished product. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you <clears> see the growth, especially in China, of electric vehicles, when you see the growth of a company like Tesla, you just think this could possibly be opening the door to some serious catastrophes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Growing uh, too fast. Um, to the media coverage, I wanted to say that a lot of it has to be the cell phone footage that was released. Because did you guys see the video? It was the mother with her like small child, and she's just like, oh, yeah, it looks like they're getting off the plane. Yep, they're evacuating in the slides. Look, they're going down the slides. And it just made, you know, this entire incident a little bit weirder. And I think but, that's... But how about the, the um, flight attendants? Yeah. How quick they were with those fire extinguishers? That no, was incredible. And not just the fire extinguishers, but what I found interesting was it opened my eyes to the world of fire containment bags. So this was something that I never even knew existed. These are hardcore bags that retail from anywhere from $500 to $1,000 per bag and they can contain a 10,000 milliamp hour thermal runaway event. So that's mm. like if a large external power bank that you use to power your phone or laptop started on fire or blew up, throw it in the bag, and it'll contain the fire, but it won't contain the smoke necessarily. Um, it's These are based on the, uh, <laughs> as my phone shuts down, yeah. as I'm looking at my, <laughs> or my computer shuts down. No, um, so a lot of these are built by Indiana-based Brimstone Fire Protection, which specializes in fire and explosion containment bags. And they're just, I found them very interesting because it's like this little Velcro bag that you throw the device inside and then goes inside another zipper bag. And they're used on everything from aircraft and boats and buildings or settings that have limited exterior access, including the International Space Station and some mines. Now, what's crazy about them being used in mines is that I never even thought about this, but this could be potentially big for manufacturers in other industrial settings. 
Because when I hear something like buildings that have limited exterior access, I think, you know, you're just in the middle of that high rise in New Jersey, you Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. I didn't think like, oh, what if you're in a mine and the battery on your tool starts on fire and everyone is suddenly in a lot of trouble? Because this actually happened. There was a fire in red at the Red Lake Mine in Ontario, in Ontario. There was a fire. At the Red Lake Mine in Ontario, <laughs> Canada, and it raised some red flags about using these lithium battery-powered hand tools. Oh, sure. Yeah. The problem is that these portable tools are extremely useful and convenient, so these job sites say they won't you know, abandon them. But basically, where they stored all these batteries for their hand tools started on fire. And these three workers went to go and get batteries to charge their tools, and it was just a blaze underground. And that sounded terrifying between yeah. this and the building thing, I'm not going to sleep tonight after we True. I mean, well, we are covering some Yeah, and while the cause of this was like never determined, like lithium ion batteries are pretty touchy. You know, if you mm-hmm. drop some of these batteries, they are. which I thought about because all of my battery powered uh tools that I have for like landscaping at mm-hmm. home, I drop the battery to my leaf blower every time I use it. <laughs> and apparently that causes like internal metal contacts to touch each other, overheat and possibly catch fire. But within 30 minutes to an hour. So I'm safe oh, now. Okay. But it's the next time that I got to be worried. Get the bag, man. I got, I'm got. i going to get the bag because. I'm going to get the bag. Not only is it a steal at $5.95, but. Is it reusable? It's not reusable. But if you buy one and you have to use it, you automate, they'll give you a replacement for life. Wow. Oh, man. That is pretty cool. Yeah. By the way, Runaway Thermal Event. Is that the name of Alex Shanahan's next band? Runaway Thermal Event. I mean, I think so. It's a good follow-up to street names. That'd be solid. Yeah. Okay. All right. Our next most popular story this week. Say goodbye to five discontinued vehicles in 2022. Automakers are constantly introducing new models to keep their lineup fresh. To make room in the product lineup, they have to discontinue old models, and many consumers don't realize until they're gone. Edmunds recently highlighted five vehicles that will be gone after the 2021 model year. The vehicles include the Volkswagen Golf, because hatchbacks have fallen out of favor with many shoppers. The Mazda 6, one of a number of sedans that have been put to rest recently. The Volvo V60, a station wagon, because they still make those, but they're a niche vehicle that few automakers even bother with anymore. The Toyota Land Cruiser, a big traditional SUV that Edmunds called a dinosaur. And the Acura NSX, the all-wheel drive hybrid sports car. According to Edmunds, consumers want crossovers and SUVs which is leaving very little room for any of these other models. Anna, were you surprised to see any of these cars go the way of the dinosaur? Uh, um, well, I, I was surprised that there weren't more small cars listed on there, but we know that, <clears throat> that the victims of discontinuation tend to be these days small cars, right? Right. Um, I wonder if consumers will ever regret the lack of small passenger vehicle options in the coming years. I mean, like we all have families with kids and, um, you know, I'd like to point out that each of us, our families have an SUV, but we each also have a small car. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want or need a second SUV. I know I'm not like alone in enjoying the appeal of less fuel use, um, easier parking, you know, like sometimes you just have a, you know, the second worker in your family is just a commuter and they're just using that car to go to and from work. Right. So I don't know. I read an interesting report in Vice that was published last year 
where they contend that there's a sizable market for small cars, actually. And it's the cars company, the car companies that don't want to sell them because their margins are so much higher on the bigger and more expensive vehicles. And sorry, I'm not trying to like start a conspiracy theory here, but it it's interesting to, to discuss, I think, because um, car companies tend to market their smaller models in times of high gas prices. Mm. But the rest of the time, they're not trying that hard. It seems to make them appealing, which Vice says also plays a big role in reducing demand for them. And even this Edmonds report said that like VW is kind of phoning it in with the latest Golf. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of wonder like uh, where the horse and the cart are. On this situation, if it's really a lack of demand or if the automakers are maybe helping to nudge that along a little bit because they're trying yeah. to get out of those markets. Right. Um, so despite the fact that there were only two listed here on this report that are considered small cars like that Mazda 6 and the, the Golf, um, there's more in 2022 for sure. I mean, this happens every year that just, you know, 6 to 12 models go the mm -hmm. way of the dinosaur. And mm -hmm. We'll keep seeing it, I think. Yeah. Uh Jeff, you had to be surprised that cars like the Golf and the Mazda 6 um, were going to be discontinued. I was because, well, just going back, I mean, automakers have always struggled with volume. Mm -hmm. They just, they, it's something that's really difficult. And I think what you're seeing here is with a surge in SUVs, with the fact that they need to put a lot of dollars into R&D for electric vehicles coming out uh, later on, but they're making all these big promises about the number of EVs they're going to be putting out, how that's going to represent a greater proportion of the number of vehicles they produce. So I think they're trying to be proactive in mm -hmm. sort of focusing their their initiatives, their energy, whatever you want to say, their resources, and what they're going to put out the door. The ones that got me, like you alluded to, the the station wagon, the V60, I don't know the last time I've seen a station wagon yeah. out on the road. I mean, they mm -hmm. are pretty rare. Everybody's <clears> going to like a minivan or something similar or a smaller, the CUVs. Um, the bigger SUVs or the, uh, and the, um, uh, the, the Nissan, expensive vehicle so i wasn't surprised to see those oh, go accurate yeah the accurate but i was really surprised at the golf there's over 35 million of these vehicles that have been sold during yeah. its lifetime so they are out there wow. but i look it took a look at the sales numbers and 2017 the golf um kind of hit its high point with over 60 almost 69,000 of them sold in the u.s mm-hmm Throughout 2020, because it was a weird year, but by 2019, that was down to 37,000. Oh, so, I mean, wow. a dramatic drop. Mm -hmm. And with the M6, which was another one that I was really surprised at, the drop-off was even more dramatic. When you look at 2015, it was selling over almost 58,000 of those vehicles in the U.S. By 2019, just over 21,500. Yeah. So the sales would seem to support the efforts or the uh, the thought process here by these automakers in terms of cutting them. Um, it's interesting what you say though, Anna, about the automakers also maybe sort of presenting this idea to the, the buying public as well. This is what we have to do because you guys are telling us yeah. as opposed to also obviously having some of their own motives and you know what? Automakers get to make money. So if they want to yes. sell different vehicles to make more money off of right. it, that makes sense. I think it's going to be interesting when you see the GMs and the Fords of the world, once they really get immersed into the EVs, mm -hmm. will they see some of these types of vehicles? these styles come back mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of the more traditional sedan because once you get past all of that internal combustion engine and all of that infrastructure, if you will, of the vehicle, now that technology being more uniform with mm -hmm. an electric vehicle, um, I think you might see some of these coming back and even at a price point that allows them to be more profitable. I find it interesting that they were still selling tens of thousands of these and they're discontinuing it. 
because the V60, they sold 385 of those so far this year. <laughs> so well, and I think like with, with these with these two particular that I just mentioned, not, maybe not so much the Golf, but the M6, I think of a lot of rental car companies yeah. mm-hmm. and fleets and stuff that are they're probably buying these, but at a pretty good price because of the quantity. So yeah. I think that also plays into uh, some of these decisions. Anna, do you think lists like this actually increase interest in these vehicles all of a sudden? I do. I mean, it it generates some nostalgia, I think, in people a little bit to be like, oh, you know, um, like Volkswagen, um, you know, those uh, those Volkswagen, like the, the station wagons are like what they did, you know? Oh, yeah. So you sort of remember that from growing up, I think, is seeing those. But I don't, I mean... Nowadays, like, what's the difference between a station wagon and a crossover? I, that's a real question. I don't really know. No, I, uh, when I looked up the V, because I, that's what it did for me. I was like, well, there's clearly a lot of V60s available if mm-hmm. nobody bought one. And let's see what it looks like. Cause I could go, we could check down to a, yeah. a station wagon if they're going to be cheap. And it is heinously ugly. Just, <laughs> and, it, it? and it's, and yeah. it's curved like it looks just like a crossover. It looks like a rental car crossover. Yeah. And I don't even know if the seat in the back is faced the other way. Well, I thought the point of it was so you could, like, stuff a few extra kids in the back. And, yeah. Like, without seat well, belts. Now, also, now that you can't do that, what's the point of it? <laughs> Volvo also has a great reputation for safety. So I think that vehicle in particular, positive yeah. and negative, it's thought of as a super safe vehicle. Yeah. So it could also have some negative branding that goes with that or some negative stereotypes like, well, it's you know, it's your mom's station wagon. Oh, my you know, kettle over here. Yeah, right. V60. So, yeah. Well. The Yaris isn't getting any young, any younger, and so you know, Pa Kettle here is going to need something. And I mean, if I could get those screaming kids a roll back, but a roll five, further five back. years ago, how would you have felt about that? Oh no, just a strong pass. I probably yeah, that's yeah. when the numbers started coming down. So, yeah, way to go, David. Um, well, uh, I was also interested in the price points of some of these, like that Acura. Is a hundred and sixty thousand dollar car? Yeah, that's a niche. Yeah, in the Land Cruiser, ninety thousand. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but yeah, the, and it's an Acura and a Toyota. Yeah, that's those aren't you know those don't go together. Well, and the Golf and the Mazda were still around twenty five k. So it's just I was kind of surprised uh, to see the sedans go in particular as well. Whereas like the Acura made sense to me. Actually, when they called the Land Cruiser a dinosaur, I was like, oh, I will probably like it then. Mm-hmm. And looked it up and I'm like, mm, this pass. That's a big miss. Well, and I do wonder away. a little bit. When you look at the M6 and the Golf, I mean, those could be vehicles that would have been bought by a lot of um, urban um, folks, you know, yeah, getting around the town. city because they're yeah. smaller, easier to get around, decent uh, gas mileage and all that. So with the rise of Uber and Lyft, makes it a lot easier to catch, mm-hmm. catch a ride. Uh, even some of the ride sharing stuff, maybe that's having an impact here as well. Very good. All right. Our uh, most popular story this week, Sikorsky is plant is closing a plant. In, to, in 2019, Lockheed Martin was going to close the Sikorsky Helicopters Division plant in Sadsbury Township, a western suburb of Philadelphia. At the time, the company cited a tumble in orders from the oil and gas sector. As a stopgap, President Trump and local officials put together a plan that would allow the plant to work on Marine One helicopters that shuttle the commander-in-chief. The solution was a short-term fix, and the factory will officially close in March 2022. The company blames an overall downturn in commercial helicopter sector. 120 workers will be offered transfers, while 240 are expected to lose their jobs. Jeff, it seems like the writing was on the wall with this plan for a while, but I mean, you got to give them a little bit of credit for keeping it open for another two years. I think. I think. I mean, 
but it, it's interesting because when you look at what kept it open, it's not really a commercial aircraft. It's for a mm-hmm. government application. Yeah. And I think that's really what's going on. You know, I, I mentioned the one part in the article that stood out for me is when they talked about commercial, the commercial helicopter market shrinking. Mm-hmm. It's really not. No. All of the factors, all of the, the economics I could pull up, it is not shrinking. It is a growing market, but it's becoming much more competitive. Right. Mm-hmm. Airbus especially is really getting involved in this market. That's a huge competitor to try to deal with. And that's not Lockheed Martin who is the parent company of Sikorsky, that's not where they work. That's not where they live. So to me, this feels like Sikorsky is sort of following the trend of Lockheed Martin and going for more military applications. That's where their their business focus is. That's where their core competencies are as a company. We just ran a story about them getting a big Blackhawk deal. Yeah. Again, that's a military aircraft. So can appreciate a lot of the different dynamics that went in in 2019 to preserving some of these jobs. We're always pro-jobs here, mm-hmm. but... Um, at the same time, this feels like more of a strategic decision made further up the chain. Granted, it was great that they could hang on and put those those additional helicopters together together for the White House, but I think this the writing was on the wall here a while while back. Well, that Blackhawk deal is kind of like a good and a little bit of bad because they have an uptick in uh, orders for firefighting helicopters. Yeah. So, well, and that's that is that's two of the areas, right, where there is a surge yeah. in commercial helicopters. It's search and rescue and and firefighting. No, I was surprised with the language they used too, because when you look at, I looked at Grandview Research in 2019, actually predicted predicted steady growth of the U.S. commercial air, helicopter market through 2025, and then I'm like, okay, well, maybe the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. But then Fortune Business predicted even greater exponential growth of the global helicopter market through 2028 and said that the pandemic, while it hurt due to significant disruption in manufacturing and supply chain, you know, it only had a 2% growth rate in 2020, but believes that the market will actually quickly return to pre-pandemic levels in the near future. So Anna, I don't, yeah, I agree with Jeff. I think that this is more of them uh, shifting their focus rather than there being a problem with the commercial helicopter market. Right. And you have to trust the company to make these decisions. And mm-hmm. I think in this case, things kind of got muddled. Like in, you know, when that, that plant was slated to close in 2019, the CEO of Lockheed announced its day of execution, I guess, if you will, with the following statement, quote, at the request of President Trump, I took another look at our decision to close the Coatesville facility and decided to keep it open while we pursue additional work. And to me, take another look is Mm -hmm. about as opaque as you can get. You can't tell me the initial decision was taken lightly. It's extremely costly to close a plant before you make any of that money back. Right. Um, I can't imagine that they were doing that without exploring every available option or, and strategically, as you said. I'm not speaking to Mr. Trump's efforts here compared to any other politician who tries to step in and save a failing operation. But it reminds me of what happened at the carrier plant in Indiana. I sometimes think politicians yeah. don't quite understand the economics of discrete manufacturing. They, I think in this case, and the local politicians maybe implemented a short-term fix that was just delaying the inevitable. Um, so Korsky kind of has to go along with it because it's oh, yeah. <laughs> terrible press to say they'd rather close the plant than turn down what's viewed as like a lucrative government contract. Yeah. And they did have a viable reason. They, they were did, given right. a viable reason. Right, yeah, they were, so. yeah. But, I mean, what would have helped this Sikorsky plant? You know, um, it's literally surrounded by helicopter plants. This region is well known for its helicopter production. Um, as you said, the market is becoming more competitive and there's a lot right there. So um, I don't think that helped, you know? Yeah. So in the end, like, 
are these workers better off that they had a couple more years um, at the plant? I hope so. Um, But it's hard to know. And I think that this this being a strategic decision, as you said, I think this was inevitable. Well, I wonder, was it, you know, does the company know that this is just a temporary stopgap? That's the thing. Yeah, because I saw that the uh, local representative said, you know, uh, Chrissy Houlihan said after spending the last two years working with Lockheed Martin, White House officials in two administrations and state and local partners to find ways to enable the plant to continue operating. She's frustrated and disappointed that we find ourselves here. Mm-hmm. But I read that and I was just like, there should be no surprise that you find <laughs> yourselves here. You know, like the work dried up two years ago. You were given a lifeline mm-hmm. and it dried up again. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe there should have just been better communication as to like maybe Sikorsky has to say like, hey, just a heads up. Yeah. This is great. But when it ends, we're done. Well, and you have to acknowledge that the helicopter manufacturing experts that run this company have looked at a lot of angles here. You know, yeah. it's just oh, yeah. not an issue of like some rep coming in and saying like, we will work this out for you forever. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how does that even work? I don't, well, and I understand some of the anger because Sikorsky used a state grant to expand the plant in 2014. And it's one of several that are in the region. So, you know, I understand if the state invested in it in 2014, Jeff, maybe they expected that the uh, work wouldn't have dried up so quickly thereafter. Maybe. I yeah. mean, what's Sikorsky supposed to say? Yeah, but it's another mm-hmm. five years. Don't yeah, well, no, don't give me that. Exactly. Yeah. I, don't yeah. want the, I don't want the government aid. I don't want the, the job contract to keep mm-hmm. us going. Because at the end of the day, there could have been another one coming as soon as this one was done. You, yeah. you have to at least leave those options on the table. Yeah. So I don't, I don't blame Sikorsky at all. I think this is just the market spoke. Yeah. No, I, and, I don't either. And don't mishear me. That's not what I meant at all. I yeah. just think that it was a complicated yeah. web of variables, and I think it's that hard they not did the to think there could, was you know? there was a political agenda here. Okay, I mean oh, not to get like everyone's too far walking on eggshells here into this, but, <laughs> but I mean yeah. it's Pennsylvania. It was a swing state. It was right before an election. I mean, yeah, uh-huh. okay. I mean that's that. There's no way that that wasn't part of this. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah. But you couldn't you can delay the inevitable here. Well, so. and to both your points, like it puts Sikorsky in a really sticky situation where A, they can't turn down the free money. And, you know, because it makes it look like they're turning their back on the worker. Yeah. So I think everybody I think the higher ups at that facility knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. They took it and went with it to see what else could happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. work out. Yeah, hoping something else happened. All right. Let's move on to in case you missed it. Uh Anna, let's start with you. What was your in case you missed it this week. Sure. So um, last week, Elon Musk tweeted that Tesla's latest full self-driving beta version 9.2 is, quote, not great. <laughs> <laughs> the technical, innovative genius of Elon Musk mm-hmm. truly yeah. on display. Yeah. <laughs> he went on to elaborate, saying that the AI slash autopilot team was, quote, rallying to improve it as fast as possible. And I loved this story because you think at first that you're catching a rare moment of humility from Elon Musk because I 100% believe that it's not great. Yeah. But then later that same day, he tweets that his next version, 9.3, which he happens to have tested immediately mm. following his not great tweet, is much improved. <laughs> he just drove it after yeah. that. And he's like, you know, guys, we've made yeah. a lot of progress after lunch today. Yeah. And <laughs> well, no, I'm sure that I'm sure that some autopilot engineer saw that tweet yeah. and was like, hold on. 
We got to get the big man on the red phone and let him know 9.3 is going to be a winner. It's ready. Yeah. Elon, 9.3 is ready. Yeah. Come on down and take a spin. Yeah. Take it to Del Taco for the (laughs) afternoon. Don't even come back if you don't want to. That's fine. So They brought brought in bagels for breakfast. Not everybody was in a better place. Yeah, exactly. No. I don't know. It just, the whole story was dumb and funny and, you know, in all seriousness, we've discussed autopilot before and the way it's designed versus the way it's perhaps perceived by customers um, and and how they perceive that it's more capable than it is. Um, I think we have to cater to the lowest common denominator here Mm. when it comes to systems in a several thousand pound vehicle that could easily kill the occupants and others around it if it's not used correctly. So in July, Elon said that users of the beta should be, quote, paranoid (laughs) and that the system, direct quote, may do the wrong thing at the worst time. Hmm. So let's just roll it out for public testing, basically with these Twitter caveats and just see what happens. I mean, I think it's irresponsible. Um, I know there's a role here for personal responsibility, but I don't love that this is perfectly legal and all you need is like, it's like $10,000 to be part of the program. Yeah, the beta program. Yeah. Okay. So you can pay and just try it out, and there's no law against that. But they're really, you know, guinea pigs on public roads with this very yeah. new technology that. I, what was that phrase again? Like, the worst. What was it? Uh, let's see. What did it say? Um, it may do the wrong thing at the worst time. The wrong thing at the worst time. Yeah, so it's a sales. I think point. I know some guys. That's their personal mantra. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it also, I mean. To that effect, it seems to have one heck of a problem with flashing lights. And uh, <laughs> I got to say, though, also, Musk, we say it all the time, but he's just, he's a spin master. He knows exactly what he's doing in, term of, in terms of tweeting out, like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to cop to it real quick. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right, hold on. Give it, give yep. it a couple hours. Give it a couple hours. Yep. Then hit him with the nine points. Solution. Yeah. The real question right is, did, did Ford or GM immediately file a lawsuit over copyright infringement or the phrase, not great? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I figured you were going to say 9.3. We actually already owe 9.3. No, uh, <clears throat> I, think, I think it's, uh, like you said, it's a rare glimpse that him actually, for what it's worth, admitting that. Do you think that when he comes out and says things like, hey, you know, where he very publicly declares that it might not be safe. Is he kind of like trying to protect himself a little bit? I don't know. He just plays so fast and loose with like the SEC and what he's saying and publicly that he's probably not supposed to be saying. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. I, Jeff, I feel like some of, a part of me hears that and just says, you know, he's, uh, you know, that's something that could be used against him in a lawsuit. And then at the exact same time, he could use it to defend himself. I told the world about it. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing. Basically just covering all bases. Yeah. You know, guys, I warned you it wasn't great, but yeah. mm-hmm. maybe it is. Man, that's going to be such a viral moment when they're like, at what point did you tell the public that the technology was not great? He just like um, scrolls through his Twitter feed. Boom. Says not great. Yeah, but I mean, like, are we just, that's fine with us as consumers that he just like puts safety precautionary language on his Twitter feed? Like, <laughs> Well, I would I put it two ways. Number one, no. Okay. Yeah. But at the same, same time, he's not, you're not forced to do this. Mm-hmm. There is a consumer decision to be made. And do I think that he, that should be available? No, I think it's way too soon. I, I think there is a corporate responsibility there. But man, you can't stop people from buying 
stuff. I know, but a lot of the other automakers have been beholden to these like strict regulatory uh, requirements about how they test their autonomous vehicle technology. I don't know how this one is not there. Like those, you know, like look at all the companies that were testing on not public roads yeah. at at night, like just in very specific areas only. Mm-hmm. They had to have backup drivers. They just, I don't know. I don't understand how this can be just like rolled out, not finished, um, and we're just going to let whoever. It's an option. Yeah, it's oh, not I, I know the only it's way option. to yeah. drive the vehicle. I think that I know. I'm saying I think that's how yeah. he can get past it. Plus, I mean, the scale is obviously very different. It's very different, and they've said that they are like pulling people out of the program if they can determine that they're being inattentive. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like Tesla is trying to make a show of the fact that they are monitoring how this tech is being used and by whom. Um, it's not just rolled out there for everyone. What does that but, waiver form have? That has to be like yeah, three inches know. thick mm-hmm. yeah. for somebody to sign up on that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's three inches thick, but it's like all the other ones where you just scroll to the bottom and click the box. Select, read it. Select yeah. all. Yeah, terms and conditions yeah. accepted. Um, no, but it's also, uh, it made me think about um, nothing that I can remember. Jeff, what's your in case you missed it? We'll circle back, David. <clears throat> no, I. Uh, yeah, because about uh, the autonomous car, like, is still not coming to me, Jeff. So what? <laughs> uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? A different technology company. Okay. Uh, or a couple of them, actually. I think President Biden um, has been pr- very proactive in terms of getting on top of the cybersecurity issues because mm-hmm. it's not just a private thing anymore. It's not just about data from a credit card company or anything like that. It's attacking infrastructure now. We saw that with the pipeline. We've seen some other um, like water treatment facilities um, being susceptible to these types of attacks. So um, earlier this week, um, the the White House basically got together a bunch of really smart people and said, hey, guys, we have to get after this. And what came out of it was a couple of companies, Google and Microsoft, both pledging 10 and 20 million dollars or 20 billion. Excuse me. Let me make sure I got that right. Billion dollars. Okay. Mm. 10 and 20 billion dollars over the next five years to help educate and initiate greater cybersecurity programs that be available to everybody. Okay, mm-hmm. so not just technology companies, not just our public infrastructure, but everyone make yeah. everything more secure because it's not just a an issue that impacts a small group of people anymore. Now it's becoming almost a form of warfare as mm-hmm. well and terrorism. So it was it was great to see this type of energy and this type of resources being dedicated towards this particular topic, especially when we look at our readers in the industrial sector. Who, yeah. if they had to be very honest, don't know and understand this stuff as well as they would want to mm-hmm. or yeah. have to now anymore. So these types of resources being available and the fact that Google and Microsoft both stepped up and made these types of pledges. Granted, a pledge is great. Yeah, yeah. Follow through here, guys. Um, I think could just help our industry overall just become that much more effective and yeah. have one less thing to worry about at night. What was interesting is after the meeting, and I'm just quoting the article here, the White House announced that Google had committed to invest $10 billion in cybersecurity over the next five years. The next paragraph is Microsoft said it would invest $20 billion in cybersecurity. Yeah. So it's of kind course. of like, where hey, you let, at, Amazon? Let, let them go first, yeah. and then we'll double it. Yeah. So. $30 billion. <laughs> Jeff Bezos, so, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> so good stuff. Hopefully that does trickle down to the industrial sector in greater quantities so we can protect all of the important elements mm-hmm. Um, that go into the backbone of our country. So I think I see what you're getting at here, and I'll just say it. David, it's time to update your McAfee. No, no, disagree, disagree. I mean, it's 
great that these uh, industry leaders came out a short 30 years after the <laughs> technology was widely available to give us a couple of uh, patchwork fixes. But uh, wow. no, um, that's a bit cynical. Yeah. Have yeah. You, I mean, have you seen how many times I've had to click the flag off? Just it like, keeps popping I up. I don't need to renew you, McAfee. It's, it's like it's six been, bucks. It's hmm? been so long that he gets an alert every 30 seconds now. Yeah, yeah. So what, you're willing to throw a sandwich at this thing just for a little security? Yeah. No, I'll yeah. take the sandwich. Mm. Yeah. You can't even buy a sandwich for six bucks anymore. You can mm. at Subway, but you'll regret it. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely said that everything has been, uh, you know, I saw the popular commercials that say everything's been upgraded. Everything's so much better. And I went into a subway, still subway. Yeah, we were like, what was happening before that they're just like, we are doing it right this time. Yeah. Like, oh, it's what? our freshest fresher. Yeah. It's just like, nope, all the little containers still yep. have the same condensation at the top. And I will take the wet leaves here, put them on top of those wet leaves, and can I have the flavorless sauce on top of it, please? Yeah, yes. this wow. is lettuce now. Subway is not going to sponsor this podcast. No, nope. that's so, all right. Yep. I don't need their food stuff sponsoring us. You're all going right. there for lunch, aren't you? <clears throat> Probably, yeah. Okay. I'm not going to eat my salad. All right. <clears throat> my In Case You Missed It this week, workers to split $650,000 after a one-day layoff notice. I'll take it. <laughs> I'm sure they're all right with the two. Uh, Merrill, Wisconsin-based Semco recently reached a settlement with the Wisconsin Department of Justice to pay employees more than $650,000 after shutting down operations on December 31st, 2019. The Wisconsin DOJ sued the company for failing to provide the required 60 days notice to employees before ceasing its business operations. On December 30th, 2019, Semco Windows and Doors notified employees that it was closing the doors the next day. New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. Rude. Happy New Year. Take everything out of your locker. <laughs> drink a lot. Yeah, drink it's a fine. lot. It's fine. You don't have to come in. But drink the cheap stuff because no more revenue. No, no more money coming in. A lack of orders and financing problems caused 140 employees to lose their jobs. Well, a lawsuit filed by Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call was seeking $682,864 in wages and benefits that would have accrued during the time from when notice was required until the date of closure. Earlier this month, Semco mailed checks directly to eligible employees, and the straight division works out to about $5,000 wor per worker, but the checks will obviously you know, vary based on experience and what they had coming. Mm -hmm. But I just thought that this was an interesting story of some workers actually getting a little bit of justice after they were screwed on New Year's Eve two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff, were you familiar with the story? No, but I liked how you worked in shut the door for a Windows and Door company. Yeah. Good work. Yeah, they slammed it, it continues. shut on their it hopes continues. and dreams. It never ends. Yeah. You know, I wasn't aware that they did have to give 60 days notice like that to mm -hmm. shut down. Yeah, the but, um, yeah, I think it's overall really positive. I mean, that had to be just – kind of mind-blowing for these employees yeah. to be at work one day and think you got at least some stability and in going into the, the new year of all times. And, no kidding. Jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, good on the Wisconsin Attorney General for going after him. No, I completely agree. I mean, I've heard you hear anecdotal stories of, like, when Ground Round went under and there was the, like, the letter on the door saying, mm -hmm. like, sorry, even if you have stuff in the locker, you're not going to get it because we're done. Mm -hmm. But, uh no, it was good to see that, you know, at least a little bit of relief for the workers in uh, northern Wisconsin here. Yeah. And you think, though, like if the attorney general hadn't picked up this case to move oh. forward with it, what happens? Yeah. You no, know? I mean, nothing. Like, yeah. like uh, to Jeff's point, I mean, it was good on him for doing that. And I mean, 
they actually have to do a little bit of uh, due diligence. They have like 90 days after the settlement to mail all the checks. After, you know, all the checks have gone out, they have to do a bunch of accounting to let people know who was missed or who didn't receive the payment. So uh, it seems like overall a little bit of good is happening. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Anna, what's your final thought? Well, I got a first grader um, starting on Whoa. Thursday, <clears throat> which is pretty big league. Got some light-up shoes all set to go. Right. Super excited. Um, I can't wait for her. She's like, uh, it's been a kind of a tough year with 2020 and not getting to see her friends and stuff. So she's pretty amped up. What was the like big school supply thing like either for her or like to find because it seems like there was always one thing on the list you couldn't find oh yeah i definitely had to resort to amazon for like um they like tell you how many crayons to have in a box what yeah <laughs> there's a standard box of crayons so so like yeah there was like the 18 pack and then like 18. the 100 pack but i needed the 24 so i had to order that but i would have just Taken the hundred pack and like tape some on the outside. Like only had twenty four in there, <laughs> just like he'll come back for spares. No, the light up shoes though. That is, I don't know. I mean, how teachers deal with that? Because oh, just in a daycare migraines. with like fifteen kids with light up shoes, I'm like, I mean, I bet this is really cool for five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> and just really annoying. I know. Because I mean, to that point, uh, Des will just stomp his feet and yell lights. Mm-hmm. For hours. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not just functional. Yeah, no, yeah. no. It's uh, actually not at all functional. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh Jeff, before we get into your final thought, I would like to add for mine, I had a couple of first of all, I wanted to say thank you to uh Andy Zell for stepping in last week. Uh had to bail and uh help out the house because everyone got sick immediately. Uh but everyone's all good. Um but there were some points on the last episode oh, here we that go. I did we take gonna... issue with. Uh, one, one point, my name's not Dave. No. <laughs> I thought it I was Dave. It. It's not Dave. This it is whole Dave. time. We've known um, you for 15 years. You've never said this before. Mm-hmm. Point two that I've never said always, it is what it is, is an abomination as a phrase and should be outlawed. Do you still have your, it is what it is t-shirt? No, I gave it to my brother-in-law because he works a tough job and I knew it would be shredded systematically as he put roofs on homes. Uh, finally, Jeff, how many turkey legs did you eat? Well, I'm a little disappointed in myself, but it was a really hot day. <laughs> so it was more about the beer than yeah. the turkey legs. Mm. I did have one, and I did eat it in as medieval a fashion as you could imagine. <laughs> I was pretty aggressive with that turkey leg. It was delicious, yeah. though. Nothing like a hot turkey <clears throat> but leg it was on only a 95-degree day. I had, I had one. Yeah. And then but you got to throw it over your shoulder. <clears throat> yeah. It was any, wonderful, though. Any axe or knife throwing? Um, I did a crossbow. Nice. That was kind of fun. Yeah. That was pretty fun. Did it get caught in your chainmail shirt? Sorry. Oh, you know what? I was wearing armor. <laughs> I bet. I went actually, all the way. The like, whatever the chainmail is that goes down and around. Like, uh, there was people wearing those. Like, yeah. I have to admit, it was actually, it was a cool thing going to the Renaissance Fair. Just seeing how many people really, really got into mm-hmm. it with their, their, outfits and stuff and their costumes and it was actually really cool it sounds super fun it was it was it was a blast i love the renaissance fair i just like the (laughs) idea of you getting after turkey legs and then it winds up being like a hundred degree day yeah just like well i feel like i I feel like i you know shot the crossbow ate a turkey leg drank some mead yeah you know hot hot mead in august mead is actually solid 
Like uh, it I mean, is. Yeah, we have. Uh, I mean, because Madison just can't help itself. There's obviously a metery. And as soon as it oh, opened, I'm like, right. yeah, I mean, it, there is a meadery. Yeah, I'm going to need to inquire about this. And it is delicious, but it is not a it's not a long. You like mead, but you don't like beer. Yeah, it's like That's a weird thing. Yeah, it's the in between. But um, that like when you go and see shows at the meadery, you're not in it for the long term with the mead. You know, it's a sipper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Getting, you can't like toss them back. No, no. you're getting full before you're getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? So it's kind of another in case you missed it. We ran a story on Oscar Meyer oh, teaming yeah. up with um, with Lyft. Mm-hmm. So they're going to surprise somebody when they call for a Lyft XL. Mm-hmm. They're going to show up with the Wiener Mobile. Yeah, and I'm just kind of wondering how this would go over because mm. you know, like if, like when we would travel together. You know, yeah. and we'll you know oh. show up at the airport or something like that or from a hotel. Yeah. Like, do you really want to take the Wiener Mobile like yes. to your hotel yeah. or the convention center? I, or yes. Something? yes, really, I, I do. But I know, and I particularly do if we're traveling with two other people in this office, and like <laughs> they get that you know the XLs coming and they're like, you know, uh, where's the uh, Black Suburban? And then this comes firing up, and it's just like <laughs> we're headed to the Sakara Bar. Let's do it. Yeah, why would you not want it? I don't know. I don't know. Just. What if you have clients or something too? Like I don't know. I don't think yes, this would go over well. Still, oh my yes, God. that is such a talking point for the lifetime of your relationship. Uh, Just like, hey, remember thirty years ago when our lift showed up and it was you know the yeah. Wienermobile? The Wienermobile. Oh man, yeah. yeah. I don't know, um, Jeff. You're doing it wrong. That, that's one of the things about when Oscar Mayer went under in Madison is like they they used to have the fleet parked here. You would see them all the time. I actually interviewed somebody who like was part of the crew that drove mm-hmm. this around and stuff. And like, they're very selective. They pick college students every year to drive them around the country and stuff. Yeah. Um, pretty amazing. Like, Internship, if you will, because it leads to other things at Oscar yeah. Meyer for those folks. But what was your interesting market? way to um, see the country. How many people fit in a hot dog? I think they have a crew of two or three that mm-hmm. are always like in the vehicle. You got a, you got a pilot. And you got a co-pilot. In a well, they're driving order. everywhere, right? I mean, so gotta yeah. switch off. So I mean, like, how many people could you pick up as your? Lift? I mean, I mean, looking at this thing, I'm thinking you could put a solid six in there, right? A solid six. A solid six. Hmm. No comments that I have about this vehicle is at all appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the uh, all right. We okay. do have one comment from a listener. Carrie uh, said that Hot Meat is actually another great band name. Ooh, I agree, Carrie. So, yeah. Maybe after street names, and then what's the one you came up with? What was it? Something um, oh, event. Um, with the bat. With the yeah. Runaway oh, thermal runaway thermal events. When that breaks up, hot mead. You're going to need like a ukulele and a mandolin. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, very good. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching us live. We'll be back on time on Friday. Uh, you know, as long as, we hope. Yeah, as long as some other parasite doesn't, you know, uh, shut down my daycare. Um, but before we get out of here, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. To email the podcast, you can reach any of us. Doug, you can reach any of us, loyalist or Doug, at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast dash from loyalistner Doug in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get it in your inbox first. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.